So I want to I want to share with you tonight just just on a just on a thought of of, of how we can begin to prepare ourselves to step into and stay in what God is doing. One of the things that came out Sunday night, God has called us to step into something, but it's not just about stepping in something. we got to stay in what we step in, right? It's easy to step in something and get right back out. Have you ever done that before? Step in, but then you, then, then you just step right back out. We need to step in and stay in. And how you stay in is having the right attitude about what you're in because the right attitude will keep you where you're supposed to be. So just a, just a few thoughts tonight on a title is simply this, critical, crazy, or committed. Critical, crazy, or committed. As we begin to look at what, what are we going to avoid, what kind of attitude are we going to have. Let me share with you, Ephesians 4.22 says this, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see that? In other words, Jesus made you new, but he just didn't make your spirit new. He also gave you a new attitude, a new attitude about things and how to perceive things and how to look at things and how to move forward. So one of the, one of the things that we keep in mind as it relates to attitude is what is our attitude about the Word of God and about the Spirit of God? Because there are a lot of attitudes in the body of Christ and amongst Christians about the Word and about the Spirit. So the opportunity that we have is to have the right thought processes around those two things. This is going to make sense in just a moment. Because why it was so amazing that a Baptist church and a Pentecostal church could get together specifically is you had prevailing attitudes about certain things that seem to be contradictory to one another. Because it, it, it seems like, and it, and it has seemed like, for a number of years and decades, perhaps generations in this country, that there existed a divorce in the body of Christ, where word got divorced from spirit. You had the kind of word-focused churches, and then you had the spirit-focused churches. There was like this divorce that happened. And everybody kind of went to their various camps, and over Decades and decades and decades, different theologies, different attitudes developed toward one another. Suspicions, skepticisms, jealousies, misunderstandings galore. And the Lord, in part of breaking down denominationalism, don't you believe the Lord wants to break down denominationalism? What that looks like oftentimes is breaking down the walls between word and spirit, and that begins to happen when God changes our attitude about him and about each other and about what he is doing. Now, here is, the, here is the ultimate challenge that all of us are going to face in the days ahead. And the Apostle Paul gives us this challenge very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, let me just tell you about the book of 1 Corinthians. It was written to the Corinthians. Everybody good with that? Pop quiz. What city did the Corinthians live in? Man, y'all are good. Corinthians lived in Corinth. All right? A city just like any other city. Corinth had issues. Paul established a church in this city. He was a missionary, right? He went there, and he established a church in this pagan city. And, man, these people got it. They got saved, and they got the Holy Ghost. Man, they got it all. Man, they got born again. 
They got the word that they received through the apostle Paul, and they got the Holy Spirit at the same time, and they were living it up. They were living large and loving Jesus. The gifts of the Spirit, the power of God was flowing in that place. So Paul is writing this brilliant letter, this treatise to this church to help them to manage what they got. You know what they got? They got the word and they got the spirit. And when you get the word and the spirit in the same place, it's going to require a little bit of management. All right? And so the book of 1 Corinthians is a management book. Right? He's right. How are you going to deal with all these things going on? So Paul's not critical, but he's helping them. How are you going to walk this out? So what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, 1 Corinthians 14, 40 is the challenge. He says, he said, I want, I want all things to be done, but decently and in order. I want all things to be done in decency and in order. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? That's like telling your five-year-old kid, I want you to play with every possible thing in the house, but I want you to do it in an ordered way. Imagine that for a second. You walk in, you tell your six-year-old, you can play with everything in the kitchen cabinet. You can play with everything in all the drawers, but I want you to do it in a very ordered way. Nothing off limits. Does that sound like it's even possible? That's a tough challenge, isn't it? That's basically what Paul is saying. Listen, I want you to have it all. I want you to have it all. Every gift, every power, have a good time in me, but I want to be in decency and in order. And that is a challenge for all of us because it is often more comfortable to live in either the order or in the all things. It's easier to pick one of those places to live because it's a little bit easier to manage. How many of you like to manage things easily, right? Maybe you have a job where you've had to manage people. Management's not a very easy thing, and it's easier to manage simplicity. It's easier to manage. I remember when we had our third child, I was thinking to myself, oh, we are outnumbered. You know, when you have two, all right, we, can, we got this. But when you have that third thing, you realize, hmm, what are we going to do? And I remember thinking riding home from the hospital with our third son, Mark, and thinking, honey, what are we going to do? What are we going to do when this one and this one's crying and needs something and this one needs something and something's going to get left out? In other words, it gets difficult to manage certain things, but how many of you know you do it? And you get through it. Not just three and four and five and six and seven kids, because there's a grace on it, isn't it? There's a grace on families with multiple children. My friends, Gabe and Evie Palmer, have eight kids, and they're, and they're not even, they haven't even started yet, right? I love going over to their house because it's just love. They're man at how? I don't know how, because grace is on it. Because God helps us to do what he has called us to do. But in the natural mind, we process through a different attitude that says it's easier to manage something I can understand. It's easier I can manage something I can control. And then we end up in one of those camps and the Lord said, yeah, but I've actually got something better for you. You see, God is to be experienced in mind, soul, and spirit. He wants to, for us to experience him at, at every single level, not just the cerebral level, but also the emotional level. We're a triune being, aren't we? We know that in 1 Thessalonians 5, that it's the will of God to sanctify us, spirit, soul, and body. We are triune in nature, just like God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
We are in his image, so we too are triune. And the Lord desires for us to experience him in every aspect of who we are and in our nature. And it's all okay. Now, extremes are interesting things. Because extremes are not necessarily void of God. Okay? Get this in your mind. We say, we need balance. Who's ever heard that phrase? We need more balance in the church. Not necessarily. Sometimes we don't always need balance. Sometimes we actually need to get into an extreme to get where we need to be. To have some experiences that we need to experience. God is not necessarily against extremes. Balance is not the end all of all through all. It's not the place that we're trying to get. We want to achieve balance. You know what trying to achieve balance is like? Trying to achieve normal. Can anyone offer me or show me anybody that's normal? You may think they're normal until you get to know them, and you're going to find out very quick there's not normal. Normal doesn't even exist. Normal is a figment of our imagination. It is a utopic creation of a psychosis we all carry around, perhaps. It doesn't really exist, no more than true, authentic balance does. So extremes are not necessarily bad. You know why? Because how many of you would say you like really sweet food sometimes? you got a sweet tooth. Don't you like that? How many of you sometimes would say, you know, I'd rather have dessert for dinner than anything else? You'd be okay with that. Why? There's something in you that, does, that, that actually likes an extreme. How many of you like sour food? Man, I love for my kids to get these, you know, sour candies. You know, I said, man, just get it as sour as you can get it. And you put it in your mouth and your mouth puckers up and, ooh, it's joy. But it's extreme, right? Those, I mean, it's extreme. These, what are these things called? The airheads? Not airheads, but warheads. You get some of these, like, warheads, man, they just, ooh, they take your breath away. How many of you like spicy foods? Oh, man, the older I get, the hotter I like. I think I'm burning off my taste buds. I mean, hot, spicy. Now, it's not good for your constitution. It's not good for your chemistry. It's not good for a lot of different things for you to eat only extreme foods all the time. But don't we like a little bit of extreme? Hasn't God wired all of us to like extreme? How many of you like extreme sports? How many of you like to go to a triple black diamond somewhere in Utah and take on that slope? Some of you wired to that, right? There's nobody that would do that. Snow skiing? How do you like extreme sports? We like, I mean, things that just, we even, we like it. And if we don't like doing it, we like to watch it, don't we? Come on, don't you like to watch some of that stuff? You may not want to do it, but you want to experience it vicariously through somebody who is doing it. What I'm trying to get us to see is there's something in us that likes extremes, and it's okay. We're actually hardwired to like it, that the goal is not always just to achieve balance and stay there, but there is actually value in extremes. There's value in, you know, a sweet or, or sour or spicy. It's, it's part of the flavor of God. I have found the Lord sometimes likes to lead us right up to the edge. You know what I mean? I mean, right up to the edge of certain things because he wants us to show us some things. He wants to take us right up to the ledge of the mountain where we can peer off and look over. Has, has God ever laid anybody to the edge before? Any fear associated with that sometimes? I remember being at the Grand Canyon for the first time. And, and when I first went there, I was thinking they're going to have this like, you know, six-foot fence down the whole thing. That was not really smart. You know, because the thing's pretty big. There wouldn't be a fence that big. So I was, I was amazed how nondescript that was. And I remember walking up the Grand Canyon in, in an in a, in a, in a off spot. And I just kind of walked up on it. And you're like, oh, my, you know, this is, this is something. And I, I remember making my way. There's no fence, no guard. Where you're like, you know, you're, you know, you just. <laughs> there's something in us that wants to look over the edge, isn't there? 
There's something in us now. You know what I did? I got on all, all I, I got on my stomach and I like crawled over where I could, where I could, where I could just, where I could just log over. The Lord accomplishes things like that to get us to the edge to show us some things. Because when you look over the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're going to see some things. And he wants to show us some things. Maybe not always to live there, but to show us some things. The Lord has not called you and he's not called me to play it safe. We're not set in this world to play it safe. If we were called to play it safe, this church would not exist like it does right now. If we were called to play it safe, there would never be a missionary to go anywhere without taking great risk. Even as parents, sometimes we pray these very, uh, what I would call, partially incorrect prayers. As we pray for the safety of our children. Don't we? Oh, keep them safe, Lord. Keep them safe. Lord, don't just send one angel. Send two angels. Send three. Lord, you got myriads of angels. Send 30 angels around them. We even, we even call, we even have prayers like, Lord, give them traveling mercies. Where in the world did that phrase come from? Traveling mercies. Right? It's, 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 it's all pregnant and born out of some, some unhealthy spirit of fear in us, you know? It's like, yeah, we should pray for safety, and yes, the Lord is our protection and our rear guard. I, I get all that, but we're not called to play it safe. We're actually called to be very dangerous. I dare you to pray for your kids. Lord, make them dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. Lord, put such a call of God on their life that they're going to go to the worst, darkest place on the planet to share the gospel. Do, do you really think the Lord would... Do you think the Lord likes that kind of prayer? You think he does? <laughs> yes. Because we've been bought with a price. We're here on mission. We're here to lay down our life for this thing, not stay in the house under 20 padlocks and security systems and guns all around to keep us safe. Who keeps you safe? Jesus. Right? I know I'm being a little sarcastic. What I'm trying to get us to see is, is that church is never meant to be safe. It's meant to be somewhat scary, right? Fear and trembling. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, when was the last time you feared him? That's why you don't have any wisdom. Because we haven't feared him, right? Man, when God shows up, he doesn't stroll in on a, on a, on a, on a I don't know, pull, be pulling a wagon or something. On a, on a tricycle, right? He doesn't pull in on a tricycle where he knickers. When God shows up, things move and shake. People fall on the floor. They don't have to be pushed over. They don't need courtesy drops. I mean, they just... Because God didn't push anybody over. You know what happens is your flesh just can't stand in his presence. Amen? That's how it works. People say, have you been slain in the spirit? I'm sorry, I'm getting on soapbox. I got time. Slain in the spirit? Where in the world is that in the Bible? Can somebody give me a verse on that one? The spirit never slain anybody. In fact, it's just your flesh responding to the presence of God. Your flesh slain itself. Hear me? I was like, huh? I never pushed anybody. Everybody just fell down on their own. They didn't need any help. It's the flesh's response to the presence of God. And when the flesh begins to respond to the presence of God, that's not balanced. But things begin to happen. You hear my point, right? 
We're not called to play it safe. We're actually called to play it dangerously. Not to be afraid of the extremes. Not to live on Lake Placid. Right? We're actually called into some incredible experiences with God that will radically shape and shift your lives. And it makes sense, isn't it? Because is it, is it really the mission of Jesus to make you comfortable? Did he come to make us comfortable? Is that part of the assignment of God? I have come to give them life and make them comfortable. I'm going to ease them into eternity right off of their recliner and their remote control and a big thing of over Redenbacher in their, in their lap. No, this is not what Jesus came to do, is it? He has come to move us into a place of uncertainty. And that's why the enemy loves to bring so many divisions. Because what divisions do, you know where schisms and splits and all these problems in church, you know they, where they originate from? Because everybody wants to get to their safe corner that they can control and occupy and make sense of the world. That's what it all is born out of. It's I want to go over here or I want to go over there and I want to get where I'm safe and I'm secure and I'm balanced and I'm, and I'm comfortable. Because if I associate with those guys, I don't know. They're a little bit, you know, weird. And I can tell you, we Pentecostal charismatic folks are just as bad as the other guys. I'm not going to go over there. They're going to expect me to sit still and be quiet and listen. By God, it's my right to stand up and act. No. There's actually, there's maybe something good about being still and knowing that you're a God hushing for a minute or two. Right? But so the Lord is, is, is calling us in together, but yet we got to let have some right attitudes about certain things, attitudes about even theological things when you have better attitudes because there's so many divisions based around things that we don't know everything about. Eschatology, pneumatology, ecclesiology. Anybody know what that is? I, I'll guarantee you a lot of church splits come out of those things. Eschatology is our understanding of the end times. How it's all going to play out. Man, people fight and argue and divide over things that haven't even happened yet. Does that make any sense? That I'm going to argue with you over something that hasn't even happened yet? There's no way to solve that argument because it hasn't happened yet. But we'll argue and we'll fight. We'll argue over pneumatology. What's that? The Holy Spirit. Right? We're going to argue about him. Listen, Jesus said, listen, the Spirit's blowing. We don't know where he came from and we don't know where he's going, but oh, he's blowing. We're going to figure out where he's blowing. He's over there. No, we're going we're gonna to argue. We're going to divide and try to figure him out. We can't figure him out. We're going to fight over ecclesiology. What's ecclesiology? You may know. That's the church. Ecclesia, the church. It's how are we supposed to do church and how it's supposed to look and how it's supposed to feel. And do we have an organ? Do we have a piano? Is the lights up? Is the lights low? Do we need spoke machines? Do we not need spoke machines? Light? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Should be run this way or should be run that way. And we fight and we argue and we divide because we all have certain prevailing attitudes as it relates to eschatology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, and we divide over those things. And our attitude is, is, is wrong and it is skewed. And Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he begins to address this problem, but he addresses the problem in a very unique way. He doesn't get so much into the nuts and bolts of it, but he actually begins to encourage them, don't aim so low, you need to aim a little higher. I actually want to show you a more excellent way. A more excellent way. I love this passage. We like 1 Corinthians 12. You know why we like 1 Corinthians 12 so much? Because that's the gifts of the Spirit chapter. Man, we love the gifts of the Spirit. That's like the, that's like the, man, that's like, ever, ever, ever watch Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? Do you remember when they like come out of the building and, and they like go into that big room with all the, with the chocolate river and all the candy? You know what I'm talking about? As a kid watching that, that was my favorite part. I, I used to dream about a place like that. 
right? And it's good, and it's fun, and it's wonderful, and, and we should get all that that we can. But Paul was saying, listen, you can have all that, but I need to point you to even something more excellent than that. That's above that, not instead of this, but a prevailing attitude about all this. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, right? What's the greater gifts? Prophecy, right? Yeah. One of all, but desire the greatest, which is the gift of prophecy, which is centered on benefiting who? You or somebody else? Yeah, right? That's really centered on prophecy, which builds up and edifies and comforts others. But he said, don't even stop at that greater gift. There's actually even a more excellent way than that. And here comes the familiar passage. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, right? I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains and do not have love, I am what? Nothing. He says the more excellent way is the way of what? Love. Because love has this amazing ability to tear down walls. Love has this amazing ability to prevail in your attitude and your heart toward others. And it will set you free. When love is in the place, guess what happens? What, what goes down? Self-righteousness and judgmentalism and arrogance and accusation and gossip. They just dissipate in the presence of this thing called more excellent love. So Paul, in no way throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, is he trying to discourage them from Candyland, right? I mean, no, that's all good. He, he wants us to have all of it. He said, listen, this really means nothing apart from this. The pursuit of true and authentic love. And love will do a couple of things for us. It will keep us from becoming critical, and it will keep us from becoming crazy, Right? See, these are, the, these, are the two, these are the two things that we can have the tendency to move into apart from the more excellent way of love, right? It'll keep us out of critical spirit, and it'll keep us out of just craziness and pandemonium, the critical. Have you ever met somebody that's a critical person? I'm sure it's none of us. It's always somebody else. Right. How many of you like to be around critical people? I, mean, I don't like it, do you? I mean, you just kind of want to just tolerate them just long enough till you can, till you can leave. It's always the glass half empty. It's always what's wrong. It's always what's bleak. It's always what's dark. You know, and it's, and it's hard to be on people that operate in a critical spirit. You know, you can, you can speak truth to somebody, and it's hard to hear, but it's not born out of a critical spirit. The Bible oftentimes in the, to, to speak of something called the evil eye, and, it, and, it, and there's a whole theology and understanding behind the evil eye. The evil eye means that I am looking for you with the intent of finding something wrong. My sole purpose of looking to you is to find what's wrong. And how many of you know you don't have to be a professional to have that job? Shortly after we started our, our church a number of years ago, I remember somebody came in and visited, stayed for the service at that time. We were just meeting in a you know, you know, living room and then maybe like 20 people at the time. And he said, can I talk to you after service? I said, sure, I'd love to talk to you. And he, and he, and he pulls me off the corner and said, listen, the Lord has sent me here. I said, well, hallelujah. I have... I don't say hallelujah anymore when somebody tells me that. I say, okay, we'll see. You know, I was like, hallelujah, the Lord sent you? He said, yes, the Lord sent me here to tell you what's wrong with your church. I said, well, praise God, brother. 
I, mean, I already got a list of about 80 things myself. Are you going to add to it? Right? It's like, thank you for your spirit of criticism. Look at this passage in Matthew chapter 20. It's fascinating. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Jesus. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. There's always critics, right? We expect the crowd, be quiet, hush, stop doing that. I don't like what you're doing. You're, you're too loud. You're annoying me. This, this guy's annoying me. But what did they do? They just got louder, but they cried out all the more. Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon us. They did not listen to the critics. They just got louder. Well, that's just the crowd, right? That's the people out there. Well, let's just zero it in on us a bit, shall we? Matthew 26, another passage. You know this. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it all on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, guess who was watching this? Not the crowd, but the disciples. It says, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why all this waste for this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor? They justified it out of their own sense of self-righteousness. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. It's interesting. It was the disciples who were the critics of the other disciple who was lavishing love upon Jesus, I dare say, in a very unbalanced and unpractical way. Would you not agree? It wasn't very balanced. Certainly didn't have a lot of decorum. It was just a waste of good money. But yet Jesus favored it. I remember years ago, and you may have heard me tell the story, I was sitting in a church service, and there's a guy sitting in front of me, he was a white dude, and I mean, he wasn't just white. I mean, he was like beyond white, right? I mean, he was, he was true white. And, I'm out, and, he, and, he, and he had a bald head, kind of skinny, looked to be maybe in his mid-50s. And I was sitting right behind him. And I was really intrigued that during the worship service, I, and he had like this kind of low-cut shirt on, and I noticed he started turning red. And I mean, literally, it was like a thermometer. The red was just going higher and higher. It reached his ears and it started higher. And I'm sitting there just saying, oh, my God, he's going to blow up. I'm thinking this is this man is going his head's going to blow off his blow off his body, you know. So I I, I like lost touch with what was happening in the worship service. I was just like, man, this is going. Let's watch this, you know. It's going to be interesting. And so he just kind of kept moving up, moving up, moving up, and it came up because, like you say, he's bald. So you could tell when like the red just hit the hit the top spot. And I mean, the moment I mean, the guy just whoo, he jumped up like that, and he started running. I mean, he jumped up and he ran as fast as he could down that way. And he ran around the back of the church and ran around there. And he made a, a few good leaps until some elders kind of calmed him down, said, set him down, brother, and all that. And I said, dear God, everybody in the place, I have a heart attack. What is this guy doing? And you know, what, you know what immediately jumped on me? Man, brother, that was just out of order. That was uncalled for. That was undignified. That was just, what are you doing? That was stupid, right? Get control of yourself. So I'm sitting there, and then the pastor gets up shortly. He says, let me tell you about William. His name was William. William, about six months ago, was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. They gave him four months to live. But the Lord miraculously healed him about a month earlier. And now he's so full of joy for Jesus. And you know what happened in that moment in time? I'm like, oh, God. Right? Oh, God. 
Because I didn't know, right? My attitude to him was harsh and it was critical. And I was, I was indignant because of his outburst of unfiltered, unadulterated joy in the place. Now, he eventually calmed down. The elders kind of said, no, calm down. But there was that moment of, ex- of expression. The Lord taught me something in that. He said, God told me, don't be turned off by what turns God on and ignites God's heart. Hear that? Never be turned off by what turns God on and, and ignites and excites God's heart. You see, it's a more excellent way, right? Love dictates in moments like that of acceptance and saying, Lord, this is so good. Because attitude originates from this change that happens in our, in our heart. Ever wondered why King David is lifted up as the premier example for us to follow? In other words, we want to be like David. I mean, how that, everything points back to David. He was the most like Jesus in so many ways. And, and what did God say about David that made him so unique? That he was a what? A man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. Now think about that for a moment. Most of us understand God. God, do you think God is after your heart? Do you think God pursues you? Do you think he really does? God's a pursuing God. He's he's an intentional God. He's a dynamic God. He comes after you. He dances over you. He loves you. He pursues you. He romances you. That's our God. He chases your heart. But there's something that gets God excited and we flip that on him, we begin to chase his heart. You see, what set David apart was he was a man who chased his heart, a man who loved what he loved, a man who wanted to do what he did. See, this is, was the governing principle, the governing attitude of David was a man after God's own heart. That's why he was able to be in a cave And King Saul comes in to excuse himself and use the bathroom. And David, in a moment, could have snuck up and taken King Saul's head right off and walked out holding his head, the head up, and every soldier in Israel would have what? Followed David right back into Jerusalem in victory. And you know what? David would have been justified in doing it. He would have been applauded by everybody, priests and prophets alike. Wow, we're going to follow David now. But he would have been a king after the order of King Saul, not after the order of God's heart. Because he pursued God's heart, he did things God's way, and it was not God's heart to come against God's anointed. And David understood that, and it ruled his entire life. He made some mistakes. God's not so much concerned about our mistakes. He's concerned about the posture and the attitude of our heart that prevails throughout the course of our life, it's the more excellent way, it's love. Are you a pursuer of God's heart? We know he's, you know he's pursuing yours, but do you pursue him? Do you want what he wants? Lord, we know you're gonna give me the desires of my heart, but Lord, before you give me the desires of my heart, Lord, what are the desires of your heart? Because I want your desires to be my desires. You see, that sets you apart. as somebody that the Lord really is looking after those that the Father is looking for who worship him in spirit and in truth, who walk in the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that's where that place takes you to pursue the God's heart. Well, the David difference. Let me give you a quick guideline here to help you avoid being a critical person. Don't judge based on weird. Judge based on the word. Got it? Don't judge based on weird. 
judge based on the word. What's the danger of judging things based on weird? Is weird not very subjective? I mean, who determines weird? Some people think I'm weird. We know that's not true, but some people, man, I'm not weird. You're weird. I'm weird. I mean, weird is highly subjective. Never judge anything based on the weird, but you do it subject to the scrutiny of God's word, right? Right. We know the prophetic word must always line up and be subjugated to the scrutiny of the word of God. Because here's the problem with basing things on weird and things that you don't understand. It's easy to criticize what you don't understand or have not experienced, isn't it? We tend to be the most critical of that which we don't know and that which we don't understand. And in the flesh attitude, we default to criticism. But guess what? We've been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. We've got the Holy Spirit inside of us. He's given us a new attitude. Guess what? We don't have to default to that anymore. Guess what? There's been another default printer loaded up on your, on your hard drive. You don't have to default to that one anymore. You can default to the new attitude. The Jesus attitude inside of you. I can default to that and resist that urge to immediately as your first response and my first response to criticize what you don't understand. You see? Because the Lord is taking us into a season that we're going to see things that we're not going to understand because we have not seen them before. Isaiah 14 says, the prophet says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Will you not perceive it? Guess what a new thing means? It's new. You haven't done it before. Right? It's something different. It involves change. You're going to be stretched. I'm going to be stretched. I'm going to be challenged with walking through, navigating, experiencing things that are new. I have no playbook for it because the playbook went out with the old wineskin. The new wineskin brings new wine. New wine brings newness. Now, it's new in the sense it's new to you. It's not new to God. They're actually ancient past. The Lord has always done these things. Someone once said, if it's new, it ain't true. If it's true, it ain't new. All right? It's new to us. And we tend to criticize things that we don't understand. And the Bible is full of examples. Have you ever read this book called the Bible? There's some really weird stuff. There's some stuff that I don't understand, and I, when I get to heaven one day, I would love to have some conversations, and I would like to ask why, 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 and why, but I feel like on that day when I stand in the presence of Jesus, all those questions are really going to be quite irrelevant. In the presence of his glory and his, and his majesty, I'm not going to walk in there and flip out my little notepad and say, well, I got a few questions for you. Why in the world did a donkey talk? Why in the world did Elisha lay on top of a Shunammite son? Why in the world when Elisha was being made fun of by 42 boys in Bethel, the prophet cursed him, those 42 boys, and you know what happened to those 42 boys? They want to know? They remember? Bears came out of the wood and devoured all 42 of the young children. That's weird. Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days. Now take that to your chiropractor. 390 days to testify to Israel of their, how long they were in sin. That's weird. You know what's even weirder? Isaiah preached naked for three years <laughs> under the instruction of God. That's weird. 
the Lord told Hosea, I need you to go find the worst prostitute in town and I want you to unevenly yoke yourself to her and get married. Because God had a purpose. He had a more excellent way, don't he? Is that weird? Yeah, oh, that's just Old Testament. Well, no, it actually gets weird. Jesus employs a, a strategy of praying for the healing by mixing up mud and spit. That's weird. I dare you, next time you find a blind person, tell them to hold still. <laughs> you would find that very unbalanced and weird, not practical, right? Please don't do it unless the Lord tells you to, but it's, at best, it's quite weird. You would never come up with that on your own, would you? I certainly hope not. That's weird. It's kind of weird that Jesus would cast all these demons into a bunch of pigs. That's weird. Now, we know Jews weren't fond of bacon and ham and all the glorious pork chops and barbecue, but, but, I mean, to send a bunch of demons into a bunch of pigs and ruin the man's farm? They all ran off the cliff? Shadows that would pass before people and it would, it would heal them? Getting articles of clothing from the disciples and taking them to the sick? And I mean, this is all really, really weird stuff, isn't it? And that's just to name a few. And may I remind us, that comes from Holy Writ, inspired Bible. Right? 66 books penned by 40 different men, inspired by the Holy Spirit over a 1,500-year period. All Scripture, God be worthy to be taught and used for correction and edification. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying we ought to take a few steps back and, 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 and prepare ourselves for where we are and what's coming and what's going to continue to come. Because God is incredibly and uniquely in himself and he desires for us to experience him and then he's called us to be a place that says I want all things to be done but I want it in decency and order I'm going to do all these things but yet I've called you to manage it and it's like managing jello it's just not easy to do you still got to manage it but it's not like a neat and tidy thing and God has put us on this trajectory and we you and I need to get ready for it and make sure we have an attitude that's not going to be subjected to a critical spirit when these things begin to happen or you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on peering over the edge of what God wants to do. And I don't want you to miss out. I don't want to miss out on what he's doing. I'll never forget one time I was in a kid's camp about eight years ago and no, probably about 10 years ago. And there was, there was this kid by the name of Jesse. He was, he was 12 years old. And every night at camp, we'd have like an altar call. There's like 500 kids there, and we are uh, running this camp. And the Lord just moved mightily in the altar call every night. And I remember Jesse came down. He was from our church in Dalton. And, 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 he, and he came down and just kind of a, just, just your typical 12-year-old redneck boy. That's all I can say. Just, that's just who he was, just a typical 12-year-old kid. Um, not extraordinarily spiritual of that nature and actually a little annoying to be quite frank. But it was during the altar call and I, and I walked and I, and I looked at Jesse and Jesse was laying on his back with his hands straight up just like that. I said, well, man, the Lord must be really ministering to Jesse. So I walked over and Jesse's eyes are as wide as a, I mean, just wide as a trout, you know, just like that. And I said, Jesse, you okay? He said, yeah, but I, I can't put my hands down. I said, well, just, just 
hang there for a minute. You, that's when you're, you're, you're glad, you know, Dateline NBC isn't there filming. Just, just lay there. You'll, you'll be okay. So I kind of walked away and did my thing and came back about 10 minutes later. He hadn't moved a muscle. I said, Jesse, what's going on, man? I mean, I want you to try holding your hands up for very long. You're going to find you can't do it very long, can you? He'd already went beyond, I think, a human ability to do that. I said, well, Jesse, just maybe you should just ask God what he's trying to tell you and listen. I said, all right. So I walked away. I mean, literally 10, 15 minutes later, I walked back up to Jesse. I mean, it's been a solid 25, 30 minutes. He's been in the same position, hands straight up, laying on his back, eyes wide open. This time I walk over to him. I said, Jesse, what's going on, man? These big tears are coming down his eyes. And he said, the Lord the Lord has called me to be a missionary. He's called me to be a missionary. And the moment he said those words, his hands just naturally went down. That's weird. That's weird. That did not come in a sealed certified letter delivered by UPS that he had to sign for. He opened it up. It was, it was stamped in triplicate. Even with, a, even with a notary of the republic signed it, that's, that wouldn't have been weird, at least in my eyes. But in my eyes, that was weird. But was it weird? No, man. That's how God chose to do certain things. So what's the solution to all this? What's the solution to avoiding a critical spirit? Be open. Don't put limitations on God. On what you will do and what you won't do. That's one of the worst things you can do. God, I'll do everything, but. I want everything, but. I'll do that, but not that. You need to lose your butt. Lose your butt. Say, Lord, I'm not putting any limitations upon you. I'm not, Lord. Have your way. Because all of us need greater faith to move us into where we're going. It's going to require faith. You know why faith is important? Because faith will usher you into something that's not dependent upon natural eyesight. See, faith doesn't depend on natural eyesight. We walk by what? Faith, not by sight. Faith ushers you into a realm that says this, I am going to take hold because faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the gateway into the kingdom because it will take you a place of knowing less than you ever knew before. In the process of knowing less than you've ever known before, you actually become more like a little child. And then you get to see the kingdom from that vantage point. You see, Jesus said unless you become like a little child, You'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So the kind of maturity we're all looking for is actually counterintuitive to the maturity the world tells you you need. The kind of maturity the Lord wants from you is actually the opposite of what you think it is. It's not the acquiring of more knowledge. It's actually the letting go of the things that you think you really know. Your interpretation and application of Scripture is not Scripture. Let that settle in your brain for a second. Your and my interpretation of Scripture is not Scripture. Do you see the difference? But sometimes we think our interpretation and application of Scripture is Scripture. And that is the path to the dark side of religion difficulty. You say, that's not true. Oh, it is very much true. In the same letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul would come to him and he would say something he says, he said, listen, I'm not coming to you with eloquence, words of man's wisdom. I'm, I'm coming to you only knowing one thing, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. But in that place, I'm coming in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So in truth, actually knowing less is your friend. 
And the beautiful thing is, if you really have a true spirit of wisdom and revelation on your life and you're pursuing the deep things of God and God begins to unfold scripture to you, the more you learn, the find, you find out the more you don't know and you actually get regressively younger as you're growing. In other words, the more you learn, the less you know. Make sense? Because God has no end, he has no beginning, he, he has no bottom, he has no top, right? So you never get there. So the more of him you get, the more of him there is and the less you know. And you get to this beautiful, profound spot of humility, which is a natural, a natural outflow of this thing called love. It begins to work together. And that is why unity and power happens among the humble, among the teachable, among those who prefer and defer others who walk by a more excellent way as we don't put limitations on God. Everybody getting this? Because this is, you determine your own attitude. I determine my own attitude about things. I determine which one I'm going to default to. And I promise you, as sure as I'm standing here, all of us are going to get to practice this in the days to come. We're going to get to practice walking this kind of stuff out because you're going to be challenged and I'm going to be challenged as we go down this oh-so-difficult task of, Lord, we want all things, but, Lord, we also got to make sure it's in decency and order. And we're going to trust your grace to lead us. We're going to trust faith to guide us. We're going to trust love to be the compass in all of it, that we deal with each other that way. Because I can tell you, I have been to the church of the first critical church of such and such city. I know what that's like. I don't want to go back there. I don't want, I really don't want to go back there. And we're just in hell for a minute. I know that's a lot to take in. But let's keep our attitudes real. The last thing is a little bit lighter and much quicker. You not only don't want to be critical, you don't want to be crazy. All right? We're not called to be crazy. Weird's okay, crazy ain't. Crazy's not good. Crazy's, crazy's never good. And it's actually possible to be crazy and be out of order, all right? 1 Corinthians 14, I won't read the whole passage to you, but basically Paul, again, is giving some instruction on, on the order of certain gifts of the Spirit within the church. He says, you need to do it this way and that way because if you don't, you're going to have people in the church that are either ungifted or unsaved. And they're going to run out saying, you're all crazy. So you need to have some order. We're not called to be crazy. Because I can tell you something, crazy in the church stains people and doesn't represent the Lord well, right? In fact, some people have experienced crazy because we haven't represented the Lord well. Therefore, we don't need to represent him anymore. We need to represent him correctly. See, the church in a large degree has not represented the cause of Jesus well. So we're actually in a season right now of representing him to the body of Christ and to others to bring us into a spirit of unity, which is the heart of God. Sometimes you can't represent him until you represent him because many have lost faith. They've lost confidence because they've seen something that's not true and not an accurate reflection of who God is and what he has called us to be. I promise you where there is disorder and confusion, God is not pleased 
God is not a God of disorder. He's not a God of confusion. If anything, God is a God of simplicity. These are things that he has called us to, born out of a more excellent way. Let me read this passage to you and we'll be done here. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 gives us some definition of this more excellent way. It will help us avoid crazy. How many of you want to avoid crazy? We want to avoid crazy because crazy is very self-centered. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. This has to do with attitude, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others, what? Above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Isn't that beautiful? So in humility, we value others more than ourself. You know what that looks like? That I might have a right to do something that can be justified and articulated and substantiated and validated. That right, but I don't have the right to do it if it's going to do harm to somebody else. Because I'm going to value the person over my right to do it. See, that's a kingdom principle. That's a heart issue. That's a love issue, not a rule and regulation issue. It's I am looking at you, brother, and, and I love you enough that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do what I have the right to do because I know it might mess up things for you. You see? That's the key. And what happens is we're all going to make mistakes and we're going to, we're going to drop the ball every now and then. We're going, to, we're going to fumble. And we might not know we fumbled. And the only way decency and order ever happens in a genuine way, motivated by love, is we have brothers and sisters around say, Brother, you know, you probably shouldn't have done that that time. <laughs> I remember a guy in church one time, and, and every Sunday he would, just, he would just shout, get louder and louder and louder. And, I mean, yeah, he was experiencing great joy, but it was, all right, you, you know. At some point it starts becoming an a, a ongoing perpetual distraction, and that's when decency and order needs to step in, right? You don't come down with the, with the, with the rod and have him toted out in a straitjacket. I mean, it may come to that, but that's not the first course of action, right? You go to your brother and say, hey, brother, I appreciate, man, your, your excitement in worship. It's kind of, you know, it's getting, the decibels are getting a little high. You may not be aware of that. And then that person has this amazing opportunity to walk out a more excellent way. And say, oh, my goodness, in this situation, this guy did that. Oh, I really didn't know. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. I'll, I'll be a little more quieter. I'll be a little bit more sensitive to those around us. Wouldn't it be amazing if everybody in church did that? Wow. It would transform everything, wouldn't it? That everybody flexing our right and our muscle. He's got a hush. Well, I got a right to be loud. You got, I mean, you can see where it goes, doesn't it? It goes to a very dangerous place. This is what the Lord is calling us into. This manner of love and this more excellent way will be the backdrop. It will be the foundation that will cultivate everything God wants to do. But if that's not in place, it will just add sands to the hourglass. So it will just dissipate. The dove will fly in and he'll fly away. Most revivals throughout human history have dissolved because of a failure to move in this kind of things. God moves and these great things happen and all of a sudden what happens? 
The flesh gets in the way. You see what I'm saying? So these are things that we can't articulate. I can't give you a book and say, this is, this is how I do that. This is when you, before Jesus, say, Lord, look at my heart, Lord, and deal with me. May I have the same attitude, Lord, that you have about these things. And, Lord, change my heart. We are in an adjustment season. As I was praying, I said, Lord, what's the, what's the prophetic word for us tonight? We're in a, we, are, we are in a season of adjustment right now. We are in an in a, in a, in a acclimation period. If you go out to Tanzania and you have the privilege to hike up Mount Kilimanjaro and on this fantastic two-week expedition um, that I'm sure one of you are going to pay for me to go one day as a, as a, as a pastor appreciation gift, just a, just a, just a thought. If... But when you're making trips like that, you don't just run up the mountain, do you? you? You go to a certain height, and they make you camp for several days. Why? No. Yeah, you gotta, you got to acclimate to the atmosphere, or you won't be able to stand it. So the Lord, in his goodness, we have said, Lord, I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. And says, God says, no, you'll die. You'll suffocate. You won't be able to handle what I'm going to do. I need to acclimate you to the environment of true sustainable revival. And one of the great ways to acclimate his body is something weird like mergers. Right, throwing people together and different, I mean, throwing us together and all of a sudden, ooh, we got to find our, what, what, what are we doing? We're acclimating to the culture of the kingdom. We're acclimating to the, a, a kingdom culture because most of us haven't lived in a kingdom culture very well. And the Lord and his goodness is going to provide opportunity for acclimation. So I, I will tell you this, over the next five months, probably nine months, 12 months, it's going to be a season of acclimation, of handling the atmosphere of what the Lord is going to do. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be tested. You're going to have to, all right, I'm flexing my muscles here because the Lord is doing something great, and this is the end result that the Lord put on my spirit. Psalm 16, 5 through 6. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. First thing we say, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Isn't that beautiful? This is something deeply personal for me because this is the word the Lord gave me for the season we're in. And I dare say if he gave it for me, it probably is applicable for all of us. That the Lord has become our portion. He has made our lot secure. Listen to this. This is the place he's taken us. He's saying the boundary lines that I have for you and that I have for me and that I have for all of you, they're ultimately going to fall in very pleasant places because God is good. He's good. And where he's taken us is good. And it's going to be pleasant. And we're going to be able to, surely I have a delightful inheritance in the place where we're going. But it's a journey to get there. And here's the thing. It's by invitation only, right? The invitation has been given to all of us. We don't have to accept the invitation. We really don't have to. You cannot accept the invitation and still get to heaven, right? This isn't, this isn't a salvation. This isn't a salvific issue, right? You, but my goodness, I don't, I don't want to say no to this invitation. Lord, I, I want to go to this place. 
that you're calling us to, this, this end-time church that you're raising up right now. I want to be woven into the fabric of what you're doing. I don't want to be these something. I just want to be part of something that you're doing. To march rank and file with my brothers and my sisters in the church triumphant and mighty. And that when the world looks at us, it will look like a New Testament church that was ultimately not defined by their power. It was defined by their love. We oftentimes think of the New Testament church was this powerful and gifts and manifestations. No, you know what they did? They loved each other. When one had, they were all together in one place. When one had a need, somebody else sold something, went and met that need. They took care of each other. That's the ultimate power of what made the New Testament church so strong. It wasn't the miracles and the miracles, as good as that was. It was something else. It was a more excellent way, and that's why Paul was striving to get that point across so diligently. Because in that place of love, in that more excellent way, a critical spirit just can't stand very long. And it'll keep you from being crazy and self-centered. You'll put others before yourself. Amen? So, Lord, let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you tonight for speaking. Lord, we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We're done with empty sermons, empty talk. We're done with outlines. We're done with form. We're, we're, we're done with forms of godliness that deny your power. We're done with hollow religion, empty pursuits. We're done with the law of sin and death. We're ready for the law of the spirit of life. And Lord, we understand that to enter in and to stay in, to step in and to stay in to where you've called us to is really up to us and not up to you. And we want to stay in this place, Lord, by your spirit, God. And recognize the deep, profound truths of Scripture are not always what we thought they once were. But they're the simple truths that get hit by a spirit of wisdom and revelation and become for us the roadmap. They become for us the atlas. They become for us the magnetic north to move forward into the boundary lines that you have placed for us. So I pray today as the people of God during this season of acclamation, of getting ready and, and preparing and, and being stretched and having to deal with some weird and some strange as we move into the challenge, Lord, of God, we want all things, but yes, Lord, we will make sure there's decency and order. And by your grace and with your help, we're going to walk it, Lord, for your glory and for your honor because you want it more than we want it. And you said, Lord, you would have your bride. You would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, Lord. And so we know you're going to do it regardless of whether we go with you or not, but we want to go with you. We want to go with you, Lord. We want to be in on this, God. We don't want to just be in on it. Lord, we just want to be so bold and say, we want to be on the tip of the spear as, as, as close as we can be because we want to take the most risk. We want to be the most dangerous. We want to play it the least safe. Why? For your glory, for your honor, for your name's sake, because we are sick and tired of the church's reputation being a byword amongst the people and the nations. We're ready to not only represent, but to represent the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in this day and this time. And we say, Lord, we want to do that for you because we love you and we want to burn for you. 
Lord, during this season of our life. So I pray tonight, Lord, you take these words that have been spoken out of my mouth. Lord, anything that wasn't of you, I pray somehow that you just, you know, wash that away. And Lord, let what you said remain in our hearts. And I pray you make it practical, you make it real. I pray even as we sleep tonight, your word declares that you instruct our heart even while we sleep. So, Lord, you would even instruct our heart while we're sleeping tonight about how we can effectively walk this out and, and, and embrace, fully embrace, everything that you have for us and that it will never be said of any one of us that we were that indignant disciple <laughs> that wasn't able to recognize what you loved. Lord, help us to do that. So I pray your blessing upon my brothers and sisters tonight. Lord, may you make your face to shine upon them. May you reveal your truth to them. May you secure them in the lot that you have given them, Lord. And I pray that they would walk in great courage, great excitement, and Lord, great joy of what you have invited us to be a part of. In Jesus' great and mighty name. All of us said together, amen.